Well, I'm coming to you from the bathroom again. Um, I'm sure that most of you are saying, Jimmy, stop telling us where you're recording your podcasts. <laughs> you're not building yourself any credibility by telling us that you're recording from the bathroom. Well, you know, I said from the very beginning that my goal in this podcast was for it to be as conversational as possible. Not that I think that conversations of bathrooms go well together. However, my goal is to make it informal. So, you know, I guess you could think of the bathroom as being the height of informality. And, you know, if you don't like how informal and how not polished and how homemade this podcast is, then you can just listen to a different podcast. If you don't like, if you don't want to hear someone talking about the bathroom, then you don't have to listen to this podcast. Um, the fact is, I, I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, I got my little bath mat here. It's really soft and uh, fluffy, and I'm, I'm not, you know, once again, I, I'm sitting at a bistro table. The first time I recorded from the bathroom, I was using uh, my my cooler as a chair but there's actually a chair that matches the bistro table that I brought in here so I'm actually sitting on a real chair this time um but yeah this is practical theology for the average joe from a reform perspective and the goal is for this to be conversational uh I'm not looking to you know be preaching a polished sermon or anything like that this is conversational theology and we're using this book, A Radical Comprehensive Call to Holiness. I'm sure that Beaky and Barrett are probably like, why is someone doing a study of our book and recording it in the bathroom? <laughs> it's not a reflection of how good the book is, I promise you. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, so we're in chapter 6. I'm going to jump right into it. Chapter 6 of A Radical Comprehensive Call to Holiness. And in this chapter, this, by the way, I think it's my favorite chapter so far. I just love, this is so well written, and the principles here are so helpful for us in our Christian lives. And I really like uh, these Old Testament narratives. You know, uh, in chapter 4, they went over uh, the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua, if you remember that, possessing our possessing our possession. And now in chapter 6... Uh, Behe and Barrett are drawing our attention to Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And I really encourage you, if you have read the chapter, uh, you need, if you've read the chapter out of Behe and Barrett, um, I really encourage you to read Numbers 13 and 14. Uh, the, the, the chapters upon which this chapter, the chapters out of Numbers upon which this chapter in a radical comprehensive call to holiness is based. These chapters are powerful, and there is so much to be learned from them. So if you have not read Numbers 13 and 14, I recommend that you do so, and then reread this chapter out of Behe and Barrett. Uh, now, Numbers 13 and 14, just to kind of give you uh, an overview of this chapter, um, the authors are using the narrative in number the, the real historical account in numbers 13 and 14 uh, of Israel um sending spies into the land of Canaan to sp to to spy out the land they're using this narrative out of numbers 13 and 14 as an illustration of sorts 
for the Christian life. And really this whole chapter and the principles that they extract from uh, Numbers 13 to 14, the whole purpose of the chapter and all these principles go to, to demonstrate that holiness is a battle for faith. Sanctification, our pursuit of Christ-likeness, our pursuit to become more and more godly, is the fight of faith. You will not grow in your Christian life if you do not cling to the promises of God. If you do not cling, and by, the, by cling, I, I don't mean know what the promises of God are. By cling, I mean cling to the promises clinging to them, believing that they're true, and staking your life upon it, clinging to the promises. And that's what this whole, uh, this is what this whole chapter is about in Behe and Barrett. And they use this uh, narrative out of Numbers 13 and 14 to illustrate exactly how this works in the Christian life. Now, just to give a brief overview of Numbers 13 and 14, Israel is, uh, you know, is uh, on the border of the land of promise, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And um, this is in the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. Uh, Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And uh, the Lord instructed Moses to have one uh, representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised Israel. He instructed to have one representative from each of the tribes of Israel, each of the 12 tribes, to go into the land of Canaan. And what what for? Uh, The purpose was to, first of all, to confirm that the land of Canaan was as great as God said it was, that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but also to gather intelligence. You know, you think of a military, when they want to go in and conquer a land, they send, they, they, they you know, we call it intel. They send in spies, and, and you can see this when you read Numbers 13 and 14. This is exactly why God sent one of these uh, representatives from each of the 12 tribes to go into the land of Israel, or into the land of Canaan, was so that they might see what the land is like, to draw up battle plans, to understand what they were up against to understand what they were what they were in for when they went up to fight um and to conquer and to uh and to take over the land that God had promised them this was an intel gathering mission and you actually see that I'm not going to read the the verse cuz I'll I'll go into too much detail if I do but it was a, it was an intel mission and um and what the the spies saw, the twelve spies saw when they went in to gather this intel, was they found that the they found you know three main things. Remember, they saw the gra- the the grapes, and the grapes were so large, um, and the, and the produce of the ground was so great that they had to uh, the clusters of grapes they couldn't they couldn't just carry them back to to Canaan after they, when they left. Remember, they had to take a pole and sling all of these grapes over a pole uh, because the grapes were so large and, and these clusters of grapes were so heavy. 
What they found was that this land was everything that God had promised them. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a fertile land. They found that it was it was everything that God had promised them and more. It was, it, it'd be like someone telling you, you know, uh, I have a house that I, I want you to buy. I want you to go look at it and I want to give it to you. And you go and, you, and they, they tell you that it's the biggest and greatest house that you've ever seen. And you go and you look at it and you enter it and it's like a, you know, $16 million house. And there's 15 bedrooms, you know, and, you know, 15 bathrooms and, you know, there's a pool table in the basement and there are, you know, four stories and there's a, you know, a six car garage. And, and you walk into this and you're like, wow, this is everything that, you know, it's been cracked up to be. Well, God had built up the land of Canaan. This, this land is a land flowing with milk and honey. And what the Israelites, these 12 spies, saw when they went into the land of Canaan is that this land is everything that God has said it is. The, the, the produce of the, of the ground, the, the mountains, and the fertile fields, and uh, that, that's the first thing they saw, was that this is really amazing. Almost too good to be true. Well, then what's the second thing they saw? So they saw the grapes, then they saw the giants. They saw when they went in to gather their intel that there were fortified cities like Jericho with walls. And walls were, you know, a defensive uh, a way for a city to defend itself and it makes it so that it's difficult to in- invade and take over, you know, a city. And there these uh, the inhabitants of Canaan were superior to the people of Israel in every way. They were stronger, they were faster, they were bigger, they had larger armies, superior weapons of warfare. They were in every way, uh, do, uh, they were in every way a cut above Israel. The only thing that made Israel superior to the inhabitants of the land of Canaan was that God was on their side. That's the only thing that made it different. That's the only thing that made Israel better is that they had God on their side. Now, that's the that's all you need, but that's all they had. <laughs> uh, the inhabitants of Canaan were in every way superior to Israel. And and so the, you know, and then they, they said, you know, they said that we, we were like grasshoppers. We are like grasshoppers compared to the giants of, of Canaan. And so when they came back, these 12 spies came back to Israel to give their intel report. They came back and they said, yep, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, but here's a, there's a problem. The, the, the inhabitants of Canaan are so unbelievably more powerful and organized. There are more of them than there are of us. And they are, they are armed to the teeth and they have fortresses for cities and there is no way that you know 10 of the 12 spies came back and they said um there is no way this is a suicide mission if we uh go into the land of Canaan i know that you know that what the ten, the 10 of the 12 spies said other than Joshua and Caleb is they they actually got angry with Joshua and Joshua and Caleb if you if you read the chapter you'll see that that they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb because Joshua and Caleb were saying you know, you know what? They're right um, in every way. 
The inhabitants of Canaan are stronger than we are. They have superior weapons of warfare. There is, you know, if we go in our own strength, they're right. There's no way, and and there's no way that we can get victory. And and so the uh, the ten spy, ten of the twelve spies wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb because they saw Joshua and Caleb's, um, you know, faith in the promises of God to be foolish. You're you're really what what the twelve ten of the twelve spies were saying was. Joshua and Caleb are send, are going to send you if you if you believe what they're saying they're going to send you to a suicide mission. There's no way we can take over that land. Sure, yeah, the the grapes are huge and and it's much better than what we have in the wilderness. And and the land is fertile, but but the people in the land are going to squash us like the bugs that we are. And Joshua and Caleb affirmed all of this. They said, yes, the, the inhabitants of the land are greater than us. They do have superior warfare, weapons of warfare. But the one thing that we have that they don't have is we have the promises of God and the presence of God. And the ten spies who were strictly adamant that, that Israel not follow after uh, the faith of Caleb and Joshua wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb because they were so radically opposed to this, you know, what they would probably consider to be idealistic um, faith of Joshua and Caleb. And so what Behe and Barrett do is they take this uh, narrative from Numbers 13 and 14 and they say, you know, we, our battle for, you know, in our battle against sin, in our battle to become like Christ, we can become like the ten spies who looked at the promises of God and said those promises are amazing, but there's no way. There's no way that we can do what God has said we can do. Yes, it would be amazing to get victory over sin. It would be amazing to live... uh, within the blessing and under the smile of God, it would be amazing to be able to, uh, to, to walk with God and live with God in the beauty of holiness. But, but my goodness, have you seen me? Have you seen my heart? Do you know my motivations? Do you know who I am? There's no way I can get victory over sin. Right? And so that the promises seem too good to be true. And what this whole chapter is about is about pleading with you and with me to say, believe God. Don't be like the ten spies who looked at the promises of God and then looked at the the size of the enemy, at the size of the inhabitants, and said, I'm going to believe my eyes more than I'm going to believe God's word. Listen, Jimmy, I, I know what the Bible says about... Uh, about the fact that sin no longer has dominion over me. But there's no way I'm going to get victory over this sin in my life. This is who I am. It's who I've always been. It's how I'm always going to remain. I'm never going to get victory in my life. I'm always going to be a big, fat, hairy loser. Right? And what Beaky and Barrett are pleading with us to do is to, is to, is to cling to these promises, to believe them, and to act as if they're true. Now, just for, uh, I'm going to read just two quotes real quick. Uh, One from page 83. They say, so often 
it seems that Christians stand at the border of blessing without acting upon the promises that God has given, given about victory over self, sin, the world, and the devil. So often we stand at these promises and we look at what God has said in his word about us and it seems too grandiose. It seems too good to be true. And so we look and we marvel, just like the ten spies looked and marveled at the land of Canaan. But, but we do not have the faith to actually believe that these things are true. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God. You're a new creature. Right? Think about if you just believe that one thing. The old has gone, the new has come. Let me give you another quote here. This is on page 86. Too often in experience, the believer becomes content to only consider the truth without crossing over the border into full enjoyment. Truth is examined from every theological angle and admired, but there is hesitation to appropriate it because it seems too good to be true, or at least too good to be personally true. I love they, that they said that, that it's too good to be personally true. Yeah, that may be true for someone else, but it's not true for me. I'm too much, here's, here's the, the phrase of the day. I'm too much of a big, fat, hairy loser, right? There's no way that I'm going to live a victorious life over sin. Now, I'm not here, and Beaky and Barrett are not here, you know, teaching Christian perfection, what they're teaching is that if you believe the promises of God, you can get real victory over sin. If you believe the promises of God in regard to what he has promised in regard to our battle against sin, about the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit, of how he works powerfully through his word in our lives to conform us to the image of his son. You just think about the fact that, that to what end did God predestine us? According to Romans 8, 28, 8, To what end did he predestine us? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't just predestine you to become justified, to become saved from hell, to become an inheritor of heaven. He predestined you to become like his son. And, and what, think of the promise in that. This is the whole purpose for why he predestined me, so that I would be conformed to the image of his son. Now, do you think he's going he's gonna to predestine you to that end and then not follow through on, on getting you to that place where you, you know, from one degree of glory to another, become more and more conformed to the image of his son? But you look at yourself, don't you? And you see your own heart and you see your own inconsistency. And just like the ten spies, you look at the promises of God and you say, Oh, that's incredible. If only it could be true. If only it could be true. But then you look at the reality of your own heart. You look at the pride and the motivations in your own life. You look at your lack of discipline. And you say, certainly, it can't be true. I had to find a way to reinterpret these passages, so to water them down so that, they, so that they match the level of my experience. 
And what be here and Barrett are saying, no, don't do that. Cling to his word. In your own strength, you can't get victory over sin, but God promises to be with you. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, he says in, on page 87, and I think that this is very important for us to understand. Of, too often, and Crystal Knight talked about this, but in a different, uh, we talked about it in a different, uh, not in regard to the pursuit of holiness, but in regard to the promises of God's character. Um, and that is that faith is a battle. To walk by faith and not by sight. To believe God's word more than you believe your interpretation of your experiences. To believe God's promises more than you believe your circumstances. To give greater weight and to allow God's promises to have a greater voice in your life than your own feelings and your own experiences. This is a battle. It's a battle. And let me just say this about the fight for faith. Because this is what this chapter is all about. Are you going to believe God's word or not? The fight of faith, and this is what Crystal and I talked about, is a messy battle. Because you haven't, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You haven't even begun to have real faith until having real faith seems impossible. Until your experiences are so bad, and until your, until your, uh, your, until you feel like it is a lost cause, that's okay. Let me, let me say this. That's the moment when true faith is born. When, when there is, you know, when God is giving, when God is helping you out and he's giving you crutches to walk with faith and you're kind of halfway depending upon yourself and halfway depending upon him and you're kind of able to, you know, when you're kind of able to, you know, to, to think that you're trusting in his promises, but you're really kind of halfway trusting in him and halfway trusting in, in him in, in yourself. And then God takes your crutches away and you fall down. And now you have nothing. You have nothing but his promises. He takes both crutches away. And your experience is hopeless. And you are on the edge of despair. It's at that point when you feel like there is no Hope because the experience is speaking so clearly. It is at that very moment that the battle for true faith begins. And until you get to that place where you're about a, a hair's breadth away from total despair, that's when you have the true battle for faith. Am I going to believe God when everything about this situation? Am I going to believe his promises when everything about this situation seems to say this is a lost cause? 
Am I going to believe his promises, even when everything in me and outside of me and around me tells me that his promises, that there's no way that his promises can be true? It's hopeless. And so faith, and this is what Crystal and I talked about. We talked about how, how faith, the, when it comes to true faith, the sort of faith that pleases God, the, the for, sort of faith that, that moves mountains, is the sort of faith that, that is almost swallowed up by despair, but then says, I'm going to believe him. And true faith is messy. True faith is messy because it comes up against the hard, immovable facts of harsh reality. Now, why do I bring all this up? Because of what he says on chapter or uh, page 87. He says at the bottom of the first paragraph, what the spies saw was real. And what they saw became a challenge to faith in the promise. Those giants were real. The spies were not seeing things incorrectly. The sin in your heart is real. Your lack of discipline is real. Your, your fickle love for God is real. My, um, my selfishness is real. My pride is real. I know my heart. And you know your heart. And you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. But listen to what he says, uh, the second to last paragraph on page 87. He says, the, uh, they say the opposition... In other, in other words, the, the spy, the, when the spies went in, they saw the giants, those who inhabited the land. And they saw that there was going to be opposition. There was no way that they could attain the promises. Because they had to go through these giants. With, with uh, superior military power. He said the opposition was integral to God's plan to teach the necessity of faith oversight. The opposition was integral to God's plan to teach the necessity of faith oversight. In other words, you don't, this is what they're saying. The opposition is necessary. It's part of God's plan. God wants you to, wants to bring you to a place where you are either going to believe him or give up in despair. That is where he wants to bring you because that's where true faith is born. That's where true faith is, is born and that's where he purifies your faith. And we learned about that in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1. He brings you to that place where you look and see no hope, no balm in Gilead, as they say, as the, the scriptures say. There's no hope. Everything's lost. But you believe God anyway. And, and, and this is why I say it's so messy, because you have to get to that point in order to exercise that sort of faith that moves mountains, that sort of faith that clings to the promises of God against all of the opposition that the world, the flesh, and the devil can fling your way. 
He says the opposition was integral to God's plan to teach the necessity of faith over sight. But the opposition was so visible. I like that. The opposition was so visible. You look at your own heart and you look at the sin that you have in your own life. And you look at, you know, you want to be one of these giants of the faith, like a Charles Spurgeon. You want to be like a, you know, like a a Paul Washer. You want to be like an Alistair Begg who, who really does walk with God. Who knows the, the favor and the blessing of God. You want to walk with him and you want to be a giant of the faith just like these other men. You'll be, be like the people in Hebrews chapter 11. And, and But you look at yourself and you say, there's no way that can happen. I know myself. You know, the opposition is so visible. I know the pull of the world. I know the I know who I am. I know my weaknesses. But God wants you to bring wants to bring you to that place where you lose all hope in yourself and so that you will learn to cling to his promises about your what is possible for you in this life in regard to seeking him and knowing him and pleasing him. He wants to bring you to that place so that you can learn to walk by faith in his promises and not by sight, not by feeling, not by experience, but by faith in his promises. Now, he they, they point to a passage uh second peter chapter 1 second peter chapter 1 i'm just going to read it real quick um you can probably hear me um flipping around in my bible listen to this uh it says second peter 1 verse 3 his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, whenever I read this when I'm preaching, I emphasize it. I usually read it about three or four times. I say, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do we believe that? He's given us everything. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life. Everything that you need, you have. If, you, if we would just believe this one passage, that he has thoroughly equipped us for the battle, for our battle against sin. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now listen to this, verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he's given us these precious promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, and that we may escape the corruption that is in the world because he wants us to escape the corruption of the world, to be devoted to him, and to be set apart for, for him, for his purposes, and being set apart from the world and the sin and defilement of the world. And he's given us these promises so that through, the, through our faith and belief and clinging to these promises, we might be more devoted to him 
so that we might become partakers of the divine nature, so that we might flee the corruption and sin of this world because of sinful desire. So here's the question. I kind of wish they would have went this way in the chapter. I'm sure they probably will at some point in the book. I mean, we're only in chapter 6 and there's 30 chapters. But the question I wish they would have asked, so what are these promises? And I wish they would have enumerated them. Now, they, you know, they don't have they can write their book however they want to write it but that's how i would have done it so that's what i'm going to do i just want to walk through some of the promises what are what promises is he talking about god has given us everything we need for life and godliness and he's given us these promises so that through our faith and hope and belief and clinging to these promises we might escape the corruption of the world and know God and walk with God and live with the smile of God and the blessing of God and the favor of God on our life. So what are these promises? Well, let me walk through a couple of the promises that you can cling to. That if you would just believe these and act upon them as if they were true, you could know victory over sin. I am Listen, I am very optimistic about the Christian's ability to overcome sin. I believe what we will always battle sin. And sin, our battle with sin, will be, to one degree or another, a losing battle. We will never attain sinless perfection. But I am very optimistic. I believe that the, uh, the prospects for holiness in the Christian life are very promising. Why? Because he's given us everything we need. And he's given us promises that, that tell us to that the that real progress in the faith is real, you know, Christ-likeness. That's the very end for which he predestined us. It's the very, to, to be conformed to the image of his son. Why would he, why would he predestine us unto that if he had no intention on fulfilling that? That'd be ridiculous. That's not how God works. So what are some of these promises that we can cling to? Well, the first one, Beaky and Barrett point to directly in the chapter. And by the way, I'm not touching on very much in this chapter. I did kind of an overview, but Chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Sin will no longer, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you. You are set free from the slit, from slavery to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. For you, since you are not under law, but under grace, you've been set free from sin, from the dominion of sin. You, Christ has broken free, broken you free from slavery to sin. You are now a slave to another master. His name is Jesus. You can say to sin, you're no longer my master. I no longer have to obey you. I have a new master. He bought me with his blood. Right. Here's a second promise that you can cling to. I'm just going to go through these very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sure you know this very well. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're not up against things that no one else has went through. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. God always provides a way of escape. He's faithful. He, he is, he, he's, he's basing this promise that God will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He's basing that promise. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He's basing that promise upon his faithful character. You going to believe that? Do you believe that promise? No, of course, this is understood that that your you know your ability does not mean your raw inherent natural ability. It means your ability with all that he provides you, his spirit, his word, the sacraments. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Imagine if you believe just this one verse, truly believed it, and acted as if it were true. There's no temptation that I go through that I cannot overcome. In his strength, James chapter 4, verse 7. You're going to hear me flipping through my Bible quite a bit. So I guess the rest of this is going to be, how fast can I get there? James 4, verse 6. Sub, or Verse 7, I'm sorry. Submit there yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Resist the devil, and he will flee. It's not he might flee. It's a promise. He will flee. Here's another one. Ezekiel. This is a passage that I you know read uh, quite a lot, because I've been influenced by Paul Washer so much. Ezekiel uh, 36 Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And a a pastor named Charles Leiter emphasized the next part of this verse. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. What, What is the Christian life about? God, by his Spirit, is progressively cleansing you from all your idols. He will cleanse you. I will cleanse you from all your idols so that your heart is wholly devoted to God and his purposes. That's what holiness is all about. That's the positive side of holiness. Being devoted to God, set apart for God and his purposes, and being set apart from sin and the sin and the defilement and corruption of sin. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be be careful to obey my rules. He, he, He is going to so empower you to keep his commandments that he actually says that he will cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you believe it? 
This is a this is a passage to cling to. He's going to cleanse me from all my idols. He's he's taken out the heart of stone. He's put in a heart of flesh. He's given me his spirit, and he is causing me to walk in his statutes and obey my rules, obey his rules. First John four four. Now this is um, the verse right before he says uh, talks about the spirit of the antichrist. And he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, the uh, false teachers. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Why have they overcome him? Overcome, because the one who lives in you, the spirit of God who has taken up residence within you, is greater his pure listen to this his purifying power the one who indwells you his pure pu- purifying power is greater than their polluting power his purifying power is greater than their power to corrupt and to pollute with sin first john 5:4 everyone who has been born of born of god overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith everyone who has been born of god overcomes the world when i read this in first in first john i'm not looking at the battle against sin as a lost cause i'm not looking and saying that it's okay for the christian to throw in the towel because god makes it so abundantly clear he's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness through these promises you are an overcomer now if you would just live that out and live as if it were true and believe the promises like joshua and caleb and say yes i know the giants are there i know the condition of your heart i know that that your your motivations are are out of whack all the time and you lack discipline and all these other things i I get it but but at the same time believe god's promises more than you believe your eyes because his promises are true. Now, I want to take you to... Uh, oh, yeah, here, one, last, one last one of this type, okay? Um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Now, they quoted this. Now, I have an issue with a lot of Reformed people about this passage. Because they, they try to take it away from the Christian. They say, oh, the only way that you can say that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you is if you're in your in the battle against discontentment. And I say, no, this is true. This is a general principle that he is applying to a very specific sin. A very specific battle, rather. The battle for contentment. But this is a general principle that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can't do that. You have to do it through Christ who strengthens you. Do it in the strength that he provides by his spirit. But you can in your battle against sin. This is a promise that you can cling to. These very true and precious promises. That through them you can escape the defilement of this world. This is one of these promises. There's no sin or temptation that comes your way that you cannot get victory over in the power and the strength that Christ provides by his Spirit. 
And this doesn't just apply to your the battle for contentment. It, it applies to the battle against alcoholism. It applies to the battle against sloth. It applies to the battle, your your battle for faith. It apply, applies to your battle for uh, against pornography. Your battle against lust. The battle against covetousness. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Your battle to be more disciplined in your prayer life. Your battle to be uh, to to be in His Word more and more. I want to I want to go to another passage. I'm trying to overload you with passages for a reason, because He says that it's through His precious promises that you can escape the defilement of the world. Well, what are those promises? Here's another one. Matthew chapter six. Now, there's a there's some logic I want to I want to appeal to your reason. Would God tell you to pray for something that He has no intention on answering? Would God tell you to pray for something that He has no intention on answering? I think that's silly. Of course, if He tells you to pray something, He's going to. That's the sort of prayer He's going to answer. That's why we love the Lord's prayer. Jesus, you know, tells us the sorts of things that God will answer. Well, one of the things that he tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, verse 13, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you pray that, do you think God is going to answer you? Do, I, I do. I believe God will answer. That he will keep you free from temptation. That he will deliver you from evil. Or the, the original can also be translated, uh, that uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, which would be the enemy, Satan. Consider another prayer. Colossians chapter 1. This will be the last one that I... I I had some others, but this will be the last one because it's getting... The time is kind of going by. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. The question is, would the Apostle Paul pray this if he didn't think that this was a prayer that God would answer? Would God have recorded this for us in his word if this was not the sort of prayer that God would answer? Well, listen to what Paul prays for the Colossians. And so, from the day we heard in verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, what is he going to ask? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I encourage you to memorize this passage. I spent, uh, it was a couple of years ago, I memorized this passage, and once you memorize it, you begin to see all that is in here for you as a Christian. Why would Paul pray this if this is not the sort of prayer that God would delight to answer, be delighted to answer? 
So what does he ask for? The first thing he asked for is verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, this is what he's asking for first, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Not just a knowledge of God's will, but a knowledge of God's will that is... Um, that, that is that in all wis, spiritual wisdom and understanding, not just a, a surfacey intellectual understanding, but a true spiritual uh, understanding of God's will. That's the first thing he asked that for. The second thing, so at, that they would be filled with this knowledge of his will so that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Do you pray that for yourself, Lord, that you would help me to walk in a manner that is worthy of you? Because that's what Paul prays for the Colossians. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Lord, I want to please you fully. Do you ever pray that for yourself or for others? Well, that's what Paul prayed for the Colossians. Why would he pray for the Colossians if he didn't believe that God would answer it? Fully, I want to be fully pleasing to God. Bearing fruit in every good work. Think of all these things he's asking for. May be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a second, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Third, fully pleasing to him. Fourth, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. By the way, his glorious might. Uh, flung the stars into existence. His glorious might rose the Lord Jesus from the grave. His might called forth Lazarus from the tomb after being dead for four days. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance to live the Christian life, patience as we wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Would you why would why would Paul pray these things for the Colossians? These are promises to you that God intends for you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that God intends for you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that He He intends on per, uh, uh, empowering you to actually do these things that you may bear fruit in every good work, that you may be fully pleasing to him, that you may be uh, increased in the knowledge of God, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, notice the word all, for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, why would he ask you to pray this if he had no intention on answering it? These are promises. These things that I went through, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. He's never going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's faithful. He'll always provide a way of escape. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. He will cleanse you from your idols. The one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are an overcomer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And then this in Colossians, with all these things, being filled with the knowledge of his will, to walk worthy in the manner of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So look at all these promises. Look at all these promises. 
do you, are you living up? Here's the battle of faith. You look at yourself and you say that I'm so far below that, Jimmy. I I'm I'm like at the I'm not even at the bottom of the mountain. I'm down in the I'm down laying on the ground in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I'm I'm you know below uh what what do they call that? I'm I'm below sea level. <laughs> I'm not at the bottom of the mountain. I'm down in the deepest valley. I'm not even approaching that mountain. How I, I'm living so far beneath all these things that God has promised. Now here is where faith comes into the picture. Are you going to be like the ten spies and say, these things are too great. And I know myself, I know the pull of the world, I know the temptations of the evil one, I know my own heart, I know my past, I've lived with myself my entire life, I know who I am. There's no way I can live up to that, there's no way that I can to live in that glorious, live that holy of a life. But this is the battle of faith. Are you going to believe what you know to be true about yourself and the enemy and the world and the temptation and the pull? Or are you going to believe his promises? Not that you can live a sinlessly perfect life. But look at all he has promised for you. And he's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. He's given you all these promises. Are you going to live as if they're true? Or are you going to throw in the towel and live on a low level? Because there's just no way. Jimmy, you don't know me. Yeah, you know what? I don't know you. And guess what? You're 50,000 times worse than you even know. But guess what? Through the strength that he provides, you can live in victory over this sin in your life. Well, I just want to encourage you. Listen, I'm going to end the way they did. I just want to read this quote. Um from the last the last few sentences will we be content to stay at the border of all the blessings that Christ has purchased for us or will we by faith enter into the experience of victory over sin the world satan and self to live with god to walk with god to have you know to live in such a way where you are walking with the smile of God on your life. Don't lose heart, Christian. His promises are true. I know I went really long. <laughs> I look in here at my clock. It's I've been 54 minutes, 40 seconds. Sorry for how long I went. I guess I don't, I don't, I'm not really sorry. I wanted to say all these things, but I hope it's been an encouragement to you. Fight the fight of faith, brothers, sisters. I'll catch you on the next one.